Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is Fundamentals of Organizing, where we're talking with organizers about the craft. Today, my guest is Scott Reed. For more than 40 years, Scott Reed helped build the PICO National Network, renamed Faith in Action in 2018. Faith in Action organizes people through faith-based congregations in over 150 American cities and multiple other countries. Scott stepped down as director in 2018. I've always experienced Scott to be one of the most thoughtful organizers around, constantly reflecting on the work and asking deeper and deeper questions. I'm glad he is joining us today. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Why do you think you became an organizer? When I grew up in the Midwest, we moved around a lot. So I was in eight elementary schools by the time I was in sixth grade. And I was a little kid that had glasses and buck teeth. And every school we moved into, I was picked on and bullied. And I think I learned a lot of things through that experience that I don't think I really knew how to talk about until much later. But it did teach me this aversion to people who abuse power. And as I got older, this was a time of the 60s where you know I was going to school Civil rights movement was in high form. The anti-war movement was beginning to gather steam. It was a time of real upheaval, and I was kind of coming to political age. So I think those were some of the reasons why I initially was attracted to organizing. I've heard you use the phrase organizer formation. What do you mean by that? So when I think a little bit about formation, what I'm thinking about is What's the story we tell ourselves about how the world works and our place in it? I think organizers tell themselves a really special story. It's fairly unique. It's a story that examines the public life and the public use of power. So some people can experience something in their The story they tell themselves is that they wish to remain on the sidelines or they're a victim of whatever might be going on. An organizer begins to look at the world through a pretty complex set of lenses that try to look at the deeper reasons as to what we're experiencing and why, and put them into a context with what the person wants to be and why. And so when I think a little bit about formation, what I'm really trying to think about is the development of the whole person and the way in which they see and act in the world not simply a set of skills or techniques that they can bring to the table. Can you say more about this kind of development of the person? Because when I hear organizer formation, I can easily go to skills and you got to know these five or six principles, but I hear something a lot deeper than that. Yeah. Well, if we were to step back and, and think a little bit about why you're in the work or why I'm in the work, there's a deeper set of values that kind of speak to us. There's kind of a a sense of self that, at least for me, is compelled to see other people as someone with dignity, to value who they are and what they can bring to the table, to understand that we belong to each other. I feel a deeper sense of value about what is right and what is wrong. I'm about kind of a sense that I'm on earth to do something with impact for others. And that deeper sense of values, if you will, the ontological reason for our being that deeper sense of purpose, I think is a wellspring for good organizing. 
Mm-hmm. If, if we are in touch with it, and a lot of us are not, but if we are in touch with who we are, if you will, Thomas Merton or Howard Thurman's sense of the true self, I think it calls us into different kinds of relationships with our colleagues, with our neighbors, with the world itself. That really resonates. I've been thinking about how it's hard to be really good at this work, and especially because of the relational nature of it, without kind of healing some of our own wounds. I think many of us come to the work because of the values, and some of us also come to it because we have some wounds, you know, and we've had that sense of, of not feeling power. And if we don't work on those and develop as, as a person, we, we can tend to kind of unleash our undealt with stuff on the world yeah. and the organization. And if we are, you know, focused on our development and figuring out, you know, really getting to know ourselves, we actually are of way more value to the people we're trying to organize and develop and to the organization. But I don't know if we give that the space and do that it needs. Um, but I don't know if, if that's what you mean also, or. It is George. I think you've nailed it. I th- you know, I think at least my journey in organizing, I was busy doing a lot of the time. And the urgency of the moment is always compelling. You know, I could walk into a conversation with leaders and it's easy to get distracted by what has to happen today or what has to happen tomorrow. And to begin to think about people that we're talking with or meeting with is kind of a means to an end. So the ability to understand myself well enough that I could be present in a conversation and really hear what someone else is saying, or in some cases, not saying, but wants to say, is something that I think equips organizers to do special work with people. And if we really believe that folks can become kind of the authors of their own future, people need to begin to experience what that means. And they need to own it and not just kind of spectate it. What is the role of training in the formation of an organizer? There's, it's kind of like a triangle of, of interests that converge in the development of someone. One is just, if you will, the knowledge. What, what's the conceptual knowledge people need to begin to wrestle with? It helps them understand the dynamics of what might be going on. So for instance, it could be, you know, when you take any particular policy issue that is wrecking havoc right now in our communities, the escalation of rent, the housing market, et cetera. What's the conceptual understandings and knowledge that helps people understand why that's happening, what's going on? There's a skill level that people need to bring to the table, which is a little bit about what's the power operating How do you begin to develop the capacity of your effort to contend for power and to disrupt what's going on, to unmask it, if you will? What are some of the skills that need to be brought to the tables? So there's knowledge, there's skills, and then there's kind of the judgment. What do I need to do at this moment? What are the choices I need to make at this moment? And I think in training and development of people, what we really want to do is package those three. So part of it, is your banking knowledge, you're equipping people to understand something better. Another thing is the skill level. You're helping people hone their skills. And then the third is kind of exercise the judgment. What's the judgment about bringing A to the table versus B to the table? 
I think from maybe 2008 to 2020, was one of the most dynamic periods in the history of the field of professional community organizing in the U.S. And I guess I'd love to hear your take on what were some of the advances and things we should be celebrating from the last 12, 15 years in the field. And maybe if there's anything that got lost that we need to circle back or give a little more love, what that might be. Well, you know, I think the thing that really has struck me as I look back on my journey is just how my imagination and my appetite changed. So I think early on, a lot of the work that I was associated with was really content to fight small fights. And it's not that they were necessarily small in their significance, but they often were fights that had a contained set of, or at least as we understood it, a contained set of actors. So in a municipal kind of setting, what you're talking about is the mayor and city council. You could go up against them and you could begin to try to move policy or resources. And in many cases, that work could be done as discrete actors. So an organization could take on the mayor, could bring out a couple thousand folks, could move a series of actions in a campaign, and could have some dramatic wins and victories. I think about the time you're talking about, a lot of us began to understand that these problems are far more complex than we had allowed ourselves to think about, that the interrelationship of causes was much stronger than what we had understood. The ability to influence beyond a local municipality required us to be in different kinds of relationships with power and ultimately with one another. And so I think we moved into ecosystems where we began to think about doing work with one another as opposed to mm -hmm. as solitary actors. I think we began to bring into our midst diversity of voices, the ability to really lead those of us who are white around issues of race, gender, sexual orientation. We began to imagine enemies, or if you will, actions with targets that were much more than just elected officials. I think organizing for a long time was very, very reactive, reacting to problems and trying to solve them as opposed to imagining something different and fighting for it. So I think the notions of governing power began to grow and develop. I think there have been a lot of really significant substantive changes over the last couple of decades that are really, I think, really hopeful for our future. Yeah. I love that description. I hear like ambition and imagination and all of that. And then that sets off all kinds of other things you got to sort out. One thing I've thought about a lot over the last four or five years is in that transition, our expectations of ourselves and our organizations are exciting and maybe a tad grandiose <laughs> at times. And so I think there can be a lot of feeling like we're failing or we're not getting it done or how come this isn't working and also a sense that we need to do everything. So, you know, something happens at the national level, we got to do it. This happens, we got to do it. I will sort that out. I believe we'll sort that out. But, you know, I know when I was an organizer on the West side of Chicago, if like a Supreme court justice died, I didn't think I had some role to play right. in figuring that out. Or, you know, if something happened in a city, you know, 3000 miles away, I, I wasn't trained to like shift what I was doing, let alone have to 
understand a C3, C4, and a pack and all of these things. So I think it's all exciting and all correct. And I think there's just some kind of catching up that we have to do. I do think the expectation we have of organizers is that they have such a breadth of skills and capacities. You know, it's, it's just setting up a lot of people for mm-hmm. the feeling of, of failure. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really fair. I think it's a fairly big lift to be good at developing leaders and good at running a campaign. Like just those two things. Cause I know many organizers that are good at one and not the other. And that's just two things that we yeah. do. That doesn't include, you know, elections. It doesn't include raising money. It doesn't include political education. It doesn't include so many other parts of what we do. So I totally agree. I do want to hear Scott, what's your take on if those are the amazing and in many cases overdue shifts of the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, what are some things that you think maybe got lost or got a little less love that we need to circle back and pay some attention to? I kind of wonder to what extent have we lost the magic of transformation? So do we actually believe that people are still in formation writ large? I mean, people Mm -hmm. writ large are still in formation and that what they believe today is malleable and Mm -hmm. can be different based on who they're in relationship with and the kind of experiences and unpacking of those experiences. So do we believe that we really belong to each other? And so am I willing to invest in someone who right now may be center of the road, maybe even right of center, is not an ideologue, but like much of America is pragmatic, kind of looking to survive and get ahead for themselves and their family, but still has something deeper in them that Mm -hmm. is yearning and can be approached and moved into a situation where they're beginning to retell a story about who they are and what they want to do in the world around them and the kind of impact they want to make and therefore kind of open themselves up to a new path about where they're headed and how they can contribute to the world differently. So I think we've lost some of that. We've lost the patience to teach and train a lot of folks about how to think and not just about how to do. One thing I think that maybe has gotten lost and in a way you described it in our older kind of form of organizing that was maybe less ambitious and less focused on changing the terrain is just just winning some stuff. And I believe winning is a secret sauce of organizing. The fact we know how to do it, we actually know how to do it fairly quickly. And then people are like, holy shit, this is different than all the other efforts that have come through the neighborhood or the congregation. I'd love to hear about a favorite organizing victory from your time at, you know, when it was called Pico that, you know, that has inspired you and is, I think you think is a good example of what it looks like to win. So we were organizing in the midst of a lot of crime and drug dealing in in some streets. And we've all been in those communities where the kind of response that you can generate to a level of crime that's drug related is typically been just a policing presence. Mm -hmm. And while leaders had had the experience of moving police, they also understood that a lot of their own kids and their own community's kids were the victims of this. And 
were either the victims of the drug violence or the victims of the police. And we wanted an alternative. And so we were going to move a major meeting with the mayor. We, we had 1,100 people out. We had prepped the mayor. We were going to ask her to declare a state of emergency. And we were going to ask her to, to convene a special session of the council in the community to talk about alternatives to enforcement that would include drug treatment programs and a redesign of the police force here in San Diego. And so we had 1,100 folks come out to this church. It was a public action. The mayor walked in. You've been in those meetings. I mean, people are pleased to see their mayor. And they gave her a standing ovation. As an organizer, I was kind of saying, oh, shit, you know, what, <laughs> what does this mean? How are we ever going to hold her accountable? But we had told her that she was going to have five minutes to make an opening statement, and then we were going to ask some questions. Because our people had all had the experience of going to council and seeing a red light, yellow light, green light at council, you know, cutting you off. And five minutes into the speech, our, our mayor was just getting going. And our mm. chair stepped up and cut her off and said, Mayor, thank you for your comments. We now have some questions we want to ask you. And, you know, you could have heard a pin drop, George, in the hall because no one really expected that. And Dorothy was one of our leaders. And before the public action, Dorothy had introduced me to her kids who were there. And the action went on and Dorothy was what we call a pinner. Her job mm -hmm. was to try to pin down an answer. She got a good answer. We ended up winning what we wanted to win, which is an $18 million investment in drug treatment and recreation and a commitment to redesign the police force to more of what they called a community-oriented policing. And that work kind of launched that effort. But a couple of days afterwards, I asked to meet with Dorothy. And so I was having a cup of coffee with Dorothy. And I just said, so tell me, what were your teenage daughters, Shelly and Amy, what did they think about the action? And she looks at me and she says, Scott, you know, they did not want to come to the meeting. <laughs> but I told them I had gone to all of their soccer games and to their... <laughs> school events and they needed to be there for me. And, and then, you know, when they got home, they couldn't wait to tell their friends what I had done. And the next day they went to school and told their teachers what I had done. And then she said, you know how long it's been since I've been a hero in my daughter's eyes. Mm. And I tell that story because for me, it really, you know, that, that whole package sums up what we can be about. It's, it's both about bringing a moral commitment into the world around us, about acting with agency, but intentionally to build power, to confront what is in order to make it different, but to do it in a way where we really grow and we become, if you will, a better version of who we are. And boy, you know, Dorothy will never, ever be the same no. because of that experience. Not even close. And probably so many people that were in that room, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do I have time for one more story? Oh, yeah, I'm dying to hear one more. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you remember, but there was a time in which there was a huge tobacco settlement. So yeah. and all the states got a bunch of money. And our lead in California at the time, Jim Ketty, began to raise the question of how might that money be used around 
questions of healthcare and health access. And for those of us who have been doing a lot of organizing, that was a question we hadn't really been asking people. Uh, we were good at asking what people didn't want to see, but we weren't asking what was missing in their lives so much. And in San Jose, as we started to ask that question, what we ended up doing was using, forcing the council to use that money to set up access to all children, irrespective of status, irrespective of insurance, but they all kids had access to healthcare. And that kind of really caught fire. And so throughout the state, organizations were beginning to move their local jurisdictions to kind of just throw down on taking the tobacco settlement dollars and applying it to access for children to get health care. And about that time, this would have been just towards the middle end of Bush's presidency, the federal reauthorization of SCHIP was coming up. It's state children's health um, insurance program, but it was federal money that went to states to fund access to health care amongst children who otherwise would not have insurance. And we had been looking for an issue that could begin to link um, our network across the country into a common fight. And we had been kind of wondering whether we could make any impact on federal policy, federal legislation. And for a lot of our folks, the, you know, Washington was a real mystery. They didn't know <laughs> who their congressman was. They'd never been to D.C., they didn't understand how it worked. And so we began to move a lot of people after they had done local work into to this question about, might we have an impact on the reauthorization of the Children's Health Care Insurance Program, known as SCHIP? And so we brought people to Washington. And George, as you know, when you are new and you move into Washington, you move into these buildings that are they're huge. The doorways are 15 feet high. Everything is designed to make you feel small. Mm -hmm. And boy, you know, so we were moving people into an environment where they were going to challenge the question of a major policy decision. Do we reauthorize at what level a children's health care program? Who is it going to be for? And it was going to nest inside a, a Congress that they didn't understand. And so we moved people through a couple of years of work that included, I don't know, we, had, we moved 120 actions in local Congress, congressional districts. There was a whole bunch of work we did to get SCHIP passed. It passed and then was vetoed by Bush. And then we had to fight in the general election in 08 to make sure Congress, we elected a Congress that would authorize it. It was authorized. The new president, Barack Obama, his first piece of legislation that he signed was the reauthorization of SCHIP. And sitting in the front row as the guest of Michelle and Barack were a couple of our leaders and their mm -hmm. children. And mm -hmm. our people felt that sense of what is possible. And it was about winning, but not just at the national level, but winning in local cities, in the state and at the federal level. And so I think, you know, winning is both about the impact, but it's also about, you know, what happens to leaders as they go through this process, how they begin to rethink about themselves. You stepped down as the director of Faith in Action in 2018, right? Correct. Yeah. But a few years away and lessen the day-to-day -day grind, anything you can see more clearly? 
I think this question of to what extent are we equipping people to be able to imagine a different future and still have the skills to contest the power necessary for that, to both build and contest mm. the power. So, you know, the, the crises that we face, whether it be in the economy, on the wealth distribution, whether it be on the climate change, whether it be in the polarization that is going on in our country, I do think that there is an ontological element to this, George. I do think that people's values and kind of sense of who they are and what they would like to be and who they'd like to be is a huge wellspring. Hmm. We have not yet learned how to tap it effectively. Do you think faith-based organizing could play a special role in that? I do. I think that there's a real special and unique role because ultimately faith institutions are moral communities that are trying to understand how they're called to be in the world. And they've got a lot of problems that they got to work through. A lot of them are internal, but that call is an anchor call for a lot of communities. Organizing, you know, good organizing kind of takes who you say you want to be and holds up a mirror to you to see how you're really acting into that. And when that contradiction exists, you've got a lot of room to agitate people into motion. Mm. The last question, if there were a few organizing fundamentals that you think are most essential, especially in this next period that we're in, what would they be? Oh, I think maybe two that I think really are going to be helpful. Recognize that the first revolution is internal. Hmm. Um, I think stay close to your people. When you have distance on a problem, you can philosophize about it. But, you know, the beauty of organizing is that God, George, think about all the homes we've been invited into, all the lives we've been asked to share. And, you know, the, the people who are struggling with the very real issues that they are experiencing have a lot, a lot of insight into how to fix them. Those are good, good words. Scott, thanks so much for doing this. This was great. I learned a ton. Oh, George, I appreciate it. Thank you. Scott said the first revolution happens inside each of us. It is a precursor to the larger change we create in the world. We all struggle with limiting beliefs about who we are. In organizing, we challenge people's assumptions about themselves. I am not a person who rocks the boat. I do not speak in front of crowds. Nobody will follow me. We then replace these limiting beliefs with truths. Scott's story about Dorothy is incredible. And in good organizing, it can be incredibly common. This is what we do, and we do it over and over and over. If this is all we did, it would be a huge contribution. And of course, we do much more than that. In organizing, we also help people tap into a radical imagination. But just as we face limiting beliefs about ourselves, we have these about our community and what is possible. People here don't want to come together. Our community will always be this way. We will never have the power to make that happen. These beliefs are good for one thing, more of the same. So as organizers, we replace them with new, more liberating ones. This too is something we do every single day. For organizers to do any of this well, we have to develop as people. As Scott said, to understand ourselves well enough that we can be present in the conversation. 
The longer I've been at this, the more convinced I am that being a great organizer is all the more doable if we do the work to be more aware, whole, and developed people. This requires a practice that helps us center, reflect, and see more clearly what is happening in our head and our hearts. This is essential if we're going to, as Scott said, understand that we belong to each other. Not only that we're in this together, but that we belong to each other. You won't find Scott on Twitter, at least not active anyway, but you might find him in a garage making beautiful things out of wood or in the neighborhood helping new organizers unearth beautiful things in people. I'm writing about the fundamentals of organizing at georgegale.substack.com. I hope you'll check it out. This podcast was produced by Fundamentals of Organizing and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Stacey Wood. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. See you next time.